hello everybody. Uh, this is Carlos, and this is the podcast uh, we make the pod by talking. Uh, today we're going to be talking about native uh, education on uh, native reservations, and here we have a guest uh, who is an educator who is uh, who has experience in um, teaching on reservations. Uh, and uh, besides that, uh, we also have Daniel again. Uh, so if you guys can please introduce yourselves. Uh, very briefly. Um, Aries, I defer to you, sir. Cool. Um, hi. Um, hi. <laughs> I'm Aries Pimo. Um I'm also UCC alumni, along with Carlos and I believe Daniel as well. Um, I was part of the Native American Student Alliance at UC San Diego. Um, after I graduated, I was a math teacher on the Roosevelt Reservation um, in 2012. And after four years, I became the assistant principal of the same high school on the Roosevelt Reservation, and then after that year, I became the full principal of the high school on the reservation. Um, I was the principal during the situation involving the Dakota Access Pipeline, during the situation in South Dakota, North Dakota. Um, and during that time, I also <laughs> taught AP Calculus, <laughs> while also like fighting the pipeline and being a principal. And currently, I have some of my students here at Stanford from um, South Dakota who are finishing undergrad. Very cool. cool. Um, I am Daniel Yu. I actually did not go to school with um, Takashi and with Carlos. I, um, I met Takashi in grad school at UCLA. We were both in education and have kept in touch over the years. Um, started teaching in Los Angeles and have moved since to Oakland. Um, I'm now going to be teaching government econ at a high school, Oakland International High School. Um, it's a exclusively newcomer population, and um, I'm in education. I think I've been in for about 15 years now, and that's my story. Briefly. Cool. And then uh, I'm just a I'm a PhD candidate, not not quite an educator, but I do have some education experience at the college level. So. Uh, so we're going to start. Uh, the first question I have for you, Aries, is was actually is actually some uh, a question you you sort of already answered a bit. But um, basically, I was going to ask you a bit more about your your background. Maybe you can go into a little bit more detail. Uh, you mentioned how you uh, you have a student that you're in contact with at Stanford, with, and so. Um, but I, I don't think you mentioned like where you're based at the moment. So uh, maybe maybe go maybe go back in reverse and like give us like the whole the whole story from uh your experience with uh, teach for america to your your current mentoring uh responsibilities yeah um sure um so after undergrad i joined teach for america um i joined in 2012 as a high school mathematics teacher and from there i was um, placed in south dakota um and I've never been to South Dakota, um, never um, <laughs> experienced life in Dakotas, um, but I had a lot of, you know, friends um, who were from there. And the moment I arrived, like, I fell in love, um, fell with the community, um, fell in love with the work, fell in love with education, and really gained a lot of, like, knowledge around, like, Native education, Indigenous rights, um, also, like, how to, like, really teach math at, like, for the Indigenous students. Um, like the indigenous pedagogy is like a completely different field of knowledge that um, I didn't really understand or fully comprehended. But like going into like master's level 
um, work. Like I actually learned like there's actually, you know, Native studies dedicated to um, teaching Native students. And so um, I was really fortunate enough to um, be in the position that I was. Um, so during my time there, I taught like remedial math classes to AP Calculus um, to um, high school students on the reservation while living there. Uh, during the middle of that time, and in 2016, um, I applied to become the assistant principal, um, and I um, I was I was surprised that I got the position, um, maybe because I was I was very young. I was in like my early 20s. I truly believed in like the work that I was doing, and so did like my community. And so I was able to um, be part of the um, a change in um, trying to promote more, more students into higher education. And so unfortunately during that time too, like we also were facing the situation with Dapple. Um, I, I could send an article that I'm a part of where <laughs> I'm, I'm featured in like Business Insider um, because like being, being like an educational leader in a small community, like you're basically a, like the face of a lot, um, especially when your community is about like 500 people, um, like, being the, like being an educational leader, like, Rural, rural education like means like you're you're the face and the voice um and so um i spoke um very uh openly about how like the damage that the oil pipeline bursting is a death sentence for us in the in the dakotas um and i was able to work with like um dave archambo um the um the father of the um Cheyenne River, I mean, that's where they were, the Santa Rocca Sioux Tribe, um, and a lot of the other tribal leaders in, in like really fighting against this. And at the same time, I was also like coming back and like fulfilling the admin duties and like also um, helping our math teacher um, teach calculus because we never taught math before. And so like I got them to do like a project on um, on um, optimization and like figuring out like the rate of viscosity of like oil going through a pipeline and how it would burst, um, which actually won them like in the math scholarship award. And yeah, in that same year, uh, one of our like one of my students I mentored for four years at that point because I started in 2012, um, applied and got into Stanford. Um, and so in the subsequent year, another one of my mentees got into Stanford as well. I currently moved back to California. My my immediate family is here in the Bay Area, and so I'm currently. Um, a Dean of Injection Culture at one of the uh, schools here in, uh, in the Bay Area. Cool. So what, so um, as a follow-up question to that, what can you tell us a bit about um, your experience? Well, you, you, you were mentioning a little bit about um, the distinctiveness of education in a rural setting. Can you speak more a little bit about um, how you would characterize the distinctiveness of teaching in rural settings versus in urban settings and also specifically in like reservations and even i mean you can even use the specific example of rosebud right because that was you were on the rosebud reservation right um so yeah that's in teach for america like i was promoted in this fellowship called a rural leadership fellowship mm -hmm. and essentially like what i discovered is like you can get your master's in urban education like their study on like urban education and urban like like settings, especially around like our brown and black students, primarily Latino and black students, there isn't a lot being offered on like working with native students and native communities, especially in rural communities. The needs are a lot different than in urban settings. The 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 opportunities are vastly different. 
Um, there are a lot of programs, social programs that are available in rural, in rural settings such as Rosebud. Internships are non-existent. Um, there's actually a food scarcity where it's like cultural deserts, um, where there's more places, there are more churches than there are to buy bread in Rosebud. Um, there's, so there's also like health. Health is a massive issue. There's IHS, which is American Indian, American Health Services, um, that are, which is like a single hospital available for um, tribal members, but it's um, vastly um, not run properly and like also like under uh, understaffed. And so there's like there's a lot of like environmental health and like opportunity gaps like present in like a rural setting, especially on the reservation. Sorry, I wasn't sure if I answered your question. No, no, that that, def that definitely answered. Oh, go ahead, Daniel. Oh, I was just gonna say you're on mute for a second. Yeah. Oh. I was wondering if I could follow up there. Um, so for me personally, I've also been teaching in, um, not also, but I've been teaching in settings where it's uh, predominantly black, brown, um, but also some yellow, yellow mixed in there, but high poverty. Um, I'm curious to know what specifically I guess in terms of the purpose of the institution of education is different in native communities, rural native communities versus sort of an urban poor community. And if you have any knowledge on the distinction between the two. I could speak like living, living on Rosebud, like I, I guess an example I could give is that like for the closest Walmart or closest like convenience store is two hours away. Two uh, hours away. Yeah. So especially in the winters, like, roads are like we would be blizzard in um it would take a very long time for us to receive any service for the roads to be filed um especially since we live in rosebud which are um in other reservations which are government sanctions and like federally contracted um these roads aren't the most well kept either um unlike in the city which is like municipal and the local government really takes care of like we are federally Man, like mandated um, areas. And so like roads aren't really kept up, infrastructures aren't really there. Um, businesses aren't on the reservation either. Um, there are jurisdictions that prevent businesses from opening on the reservation. And so there's very little to no opportunity. A lot of, um, like once again, like I, like I say, like food subs, like it's a, there's a food desert. Um, and like the example, like, convenience stores being two hours away, like Walmart and other grocery stores. Um, there are um, a lot of folks who live on commodities, which are commodity foods just like bread, cheese, peanut butter, oil. Um, and that adds to like the DC problem that happens, a lot of health issues that happen on the reservation. Additionally, like the hospitals that are poorly run that government sanction, like there aren't enough people and there are also people who generally like don't provide the adequate service for healthcare. Um, in addition, like, like these are the like these are some of the problems. But so there's a lot of strength in there too, a lot of resiliency. The tribe really works hard in like making sure culture is at the forefront of education, um, really combating all these issues. Um, so there, there's a mix. It's 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 unique. Um, whereas like living in an urban setting, like what I realized the, in in the Bay Area in general. I see like the Bay Area is more as like a tale of two cities. There's like the hyper rich. There's also like those who are not. <laughs> and it's it's different on Rosebud because there there are there are no opportunities for there to be hyper rich. It's just um, one would call it third world living conditions. 
so then, um, you know, within that context, how do the youth think of what the purpose of their education is? Let's say, were you, you were in high school? Were you teaching high school on the res? Yeah. How do they conceive of their education and its like purpose, uh, what they do in the classroom versus what it is they live um, a part of in, in the society? Like, are they thinking about tests? Are they thinking about grades? Um, you're saying culture's at the forefront. Uh, I'm very curious about that. Yeah, so it's just like any other high school um, from what from what I could tell you. And students, like, I think, like, whenever I hear the term, like, uh, first world problems, <laughs> people, like, the argument against that is, like, oh, people in third world doesn't, don't have these problems in reality. Like, students on the reservations like, are also dealing with, like, high school crushes, are you also dealing with, like, drama, are also dealing with, like, all of these other things. Like, in addition to all these other systematic things that are happening on the reservation. And so, like, students on the reservation, like, students are also studying for the ACT while also, like, dealing with the fact that they have these other issues that they're balancing around their life. And it's not to say that, like, they're not dealing with what you would experience, but they're, it's in addition to everything else. And like I said, like, cultures in the forefront, like, students partake in a lot of, like, ceremonies. Students are doing um, sweat which is also kind of neat out there. Students are doing powwows. Students are doing um, a lot to really make sure their culture like continues. Um, one important thing is that like Lakota language is like a course that's offered as a foreign language, as a foreign language requirement. And so um, students are retaining and learning the language at school. Um, so you mentioned that they, the, the reservation is very interested in putting culture at the forefront when it comes to education. But it seems that they, they bring in a lot of the educators that they actually bring onto these schools are, are people from other parts of the country, not necessarily from the reservation itself. For example, yourself, right? You came from, you were from California uh, and your tribe is actually technically like a non-Lakota educator in this Lakota setting, uh, providing, uh, a, you know, this, an education that's, you know, it, well, that's intended to include Lakota cultural elements. So what, what are the, that, that makes me wonder what kinds of educators are welcomed into the, uh, into this, um, into the high school? Like what are the teachers like generally? Are there actually um, local educators, like people who are actually from the community? Uh, what's the proportion of local educators versus uh, people who sort of moved in? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, actually, had a lot of conversations about this. At my school in particular, I would say like half were like local, um, the local tribal college is there, which provides bachelor's in education and a master's in education. So there is a, um, there is a pathway for folks within the community to come back and be and stay and be in education. I remember when I, when I was initially hired, the principal who hired me talked about like we had a staff meeting and someone said like, you know, we really want to like make sure our students like come back and like become teachers and like, you know, replace us. And the, the principal at the time was like, yes, we do want that. We also want the best. We want like the, the right people in the right roles. And so when I first started like coming from UC San Diego, like we came from very like activist <laughs> background. Like we did a lot. 
And so when I got there, like, I was like, it is very radical, like, hey, let's talk about decolonization. And like, I was talking, and then, like, these parents were like, okay, cool, but can you teach my kid to add? <laughs> can you teach my kid how to, like, like what's a derivative? And so, like, I, I, um, I've come to realize, like, there's, folks want the best people in their schools. And ideally, like, the best people are, are coming from within the walls and being grown and coming back. But in the bottom line is, like, we want the best folks. And, um, and like, I could say, like, the best local like, language teachers are from the community. Like, the best English teacher I met in my life is from there. Um, one of the best science teachers I met was from there. Um, and like I'm grateful and honored enough like that he, he valued my work as a math teacher to like say I was one of the ones that he wanted me like on their team um and so like that's how they were operating. Are there any uh like white American educators at that school? Yeah um there are there were a lot there there was a few who'd come in with a kind of savior complex um <laughs> And had this like idea of like, oh, I'm gonna like teach native children. I'm gonna like <laughs> do some like romanticized, ver- like westernized version of like what it means to go on a reservation. And well, what, what did you? What was? What did you call it? What's the name? Like white savior. White uh, savior. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it was a very um, odd, especially within teacher America. It was a very odd thing to see, um, especially when folks would come in and have this like white savior mentality, but they're, they're from these like urban cities like New York, um, Los Angeles, um, the Bay, but actively participated in like not talking to people of color in their own communities like, back home. And so like, I was like, what? Like it, it, was, it was a very like, it didn't make sense to me that they, and a lot of their, like, all of them got a massive reality check when they came onto their reservation with this, like, white zero mentality because of the way that they treated, like, our, like, 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 janitorial staff, the way they treated other people in the community, they treated them the same way they did back at home. And so, and you can't do that because these are, like, these people's uncles, their dads, their, their cousins, their brothers, and, like, this is, I think, like, there was, like, a self-reflection piece of, like, how are they treating, like, people in their own community? Was there eventually sort of like they're becoming a little bit more enlightened or aware of their privilege and their paternalism or and or did they just kind of like move out were they kicked out how how did that how did that sort of merging of worlds end up because let's teach for America they usually go off to fancy places after they do their their service right right um I could. I don't know if I could speak for other people's experience, whether or not they really learned, like, like generally learned anything. Um, what I can say is that, like, from my observations, some people did get kicked out. <laughs> some people, like, left within the first three months. Some people uh-huh. stayed within two years. Um, and some people stayed longer than I did. Um, I was there uh-huh. for six years, and someone's still there. And some went into hedge funds afterwards. Some went into state as educators. And one of them, like, went to go work for the governor of North Dakota and, like, was against the pipe, like, was for the pipeline and, like, tried to talk to me about, like, telling people to... And so, like, we met, like, in a very odd, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what, what is happening right now? Um, wow. so, like, yeah, so it, it ran the gamut. And then what would, what would you say is the... Um, what would you say... How, how would you characterize the results of this uh, Lakota culture-based education, or at least the Lakota cultural-based elements of the, of 
of this edu of education on on the kids like how how much is how much of that element of their education is uh, actually is like a sticking with the kids i say it's highly effective i i don't know if my school in particular is the model in which the code education truly comes to life because we still have like state guidelines for a public school um there was another high school on the reservation that was really that was a bureau ed education school um what is happening is a former colleague of mine is opening up a charter school that is um called a community school which is a lakota based school um and we are fully lakota like it is every single step of the way like from math to science to everything is like lakota culture i i don't know a lot about like what the curriculum or everything is looking like but I know they're in the phases of implementation and I'm excited to see like what what they're doing because like what it shows from what I know is that our students who our students were successful the most when teachers um, like really understood their culture and, and like looked like them and so like there was a lot of that's 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 like that was what, that was like an important part of it. Um, I have a question. I've always wanted to have this sort of discussion on the concept of restorative justice um, in Oakland. Um, I don't know. It's actually not so much popular in LA where I taught, but in Oakland there is a there's a mass ideology sort of best practice about restorative practice and. Um, all the trainings I've been to, all the professional development, whether it's a white person or a black person or a brown person, um, there's never any indigenous person talking about it, but they always frame it as restorative justice is, a, is an indigenous practice. And we have taken this indigenous practice of being in circle to address harm. And there's a protocol and so on and so forth. I'm curious to know if you had an experience with this concept and your opinions on this restorative justice program in urban settings using this sort of pan-Indian concept of what this is to heal our problems. I'm just, so, I'm just curious about this. Um, this is also really great. Um, <laughs> it's like verging on a line of appropriation, but also like... Um, yeah, I, um, I'm very familiar with restorative justice. Um, okay. I've, like, it must just because, like, I'm very vocal about my background, but, like, people never say, like, this is an indigenous process. <laughs> so, like, I don't think they would ever say it to my face. Like, right, right, right. But um, I have heard that. Like, I can't say, like, the values around it in particular like where it stems from for like which particular tribe or what like reason rhyme or rhythm but i know like the essence of this so, like there is this belief of like community and like restoring that community and that is like from my experience like very central to the work that i like that i did and a lot of folks did back on the reservation and other like native schools to say fully like the protocol that we follow <laughs> is um necessarily like native owned like I like I don't think so like I think that's like a very um a way to brand it that right, I don't right. think um has much merit in in it but yeah that's my thought on it mm. yeah appreciate that and, uh, and then you mentioned earlier that you're you know you're currently mentoring um students in college uh, particularly some students at, in um, Stanford 
So what is, uh, I, I, I forget the, the term for this. What's basically, what's uh, the general college experience like for, for students who come from Rosebud and then maybe more generally for, for native students? Unfortunately, like the graduation for students at Rosebud is very, uh, I mean, for, for students who go to higher education is very low. I, I remember one time, I think it was like my third year as an educator, I went to this conference and a former Teach for America teacher who taught on Rosebud made a statement saying that like we could get our kids to like the best schools in the country, but we can't get them to graduate. And I remember looking at him and being like, I'll prove you wrong. <laughs> like this is not the tale and this is not the narrative that you're going to push at a conference right now. And I remember thinking to myself, like when I started, like I think I told you like this, like the story of like talking about decolonization and decolonizing education. I think the idea of a mentor is actually a very powerful one. Like I think it's, especially someone that has been there and seen them growing up, like understands them, checks in with them regularly, um, supports um, in a way that like a lot of these, a lot of my students, my students who are here, whose families never been through a four-year education, um, don't have the access to come to California. And so like, I am really like, like really there to like rethink what it means like really rethink education. I think like a, a potential mentorship thing that could happen, like could, is actually a very powerful one. And there are actual education models like actually value mentorship, especially like being a first generation, like native, like college student, and like in the situation I am now, like I, I'm more than happy to, <laughs> and privileged to be in the position that I am to like make sure that the students that I have here like graduate. You know, there's uh, there's an interesting idea there. Um, you're talking about going to the conference and the narrative of we get, you know, whatever that means, we get these students into these like, you know, fancy colleges, but they don't graduate. Um, the statistics are pretty staggering in that in that sense. When I have um, communications with students who do drop out, um, it's kind of interesting the the stories that they tell. And it's never because the work is difficult. I've never heard in the almost sort of like 20 years I've seen, nobody, these students of color are never saying, I can't do the work. It's always some other thing, usually related to money and, um, or family, right? In some combination. Um, you mentioned, of course, sort of these charters coming up and supporting communities in a different kind of way. Like, I wonder for both of you all, do you, how do you imagine a different kind of institution or support post high school to support folks to be able to not just get in, but be successful in uh, bachelor's programs? Like, what is that missing link that you've seen or heard about? Well, my, my, my understanding was always that there, you have to go to the right high school, right? Because there are certain high schools uh -huh. that have the AP classes not all high school. Right. Not all high schools do that. I, I actually I went to a very good high school. Um, it was a private high school, and but it didn't offer AB classes. So the the availability of that option is is, is sort of patchy, I guess. Um, but but yeah, if you're if you're a student who takes AP, I remember meeting students at UC San Diego who take AP classes, and they were able to, they were on the fast track to f completing their degrees because all these courses they took in high school were were college credit. 
I think that option is available depending on where you're at, what school district you're in. So at least that, that's, that's, my, that's my sense. And then some people who are just in the wrong school district are, are unlucky and left out. But, but yeah, I don't know. That, that's always been, that's always been my. Yeah, same. Yeah, I don't know if access to more like EP courses and like test preparation is really a great indicator of whether a student will make it through their four years. I think I, I could be wrong, but I, I believe research has shows that like these aptitude tests really don't show beyond the first two, whether or not a student will be successful in higher education. Um, I think like you, you hit the nail on the head when you said um, students that you've known have other factors that contribute to them not completing their four-year degree. And from my experience, like I, I had plenty of students who took AP Calc um, who didn't complete their four years. And like money aside, like I, like I'm trying to understand like the idea of like what it means to be in community, um, not just in a student's four years of high school, but being community in, like in their lives. And right now, like, and in like in that community with my students, because like I'm making sure like their FAFSA applied for, um, the scholarships I applied for when I was in four years are still available through American Indian College Fund, um, like graduate student American Indian Higher Education, like all of these are applied for as well as like mental health. There's a unique mental health issues that um, uh, Native students face, suicide rates in the reservation, Native students are a lot higher across the board. Just like making sure that I do check-ins with my students, making sure that they're okay. Um, <laughs> and like these, these are things that they'll seem small. Like I feel like go, like, go a long way. Like, being, like staying in the community with your students, I think like might be like a part of it. Yeah, because I know it seems that that sense of atomization after high school, that community is lost. And for so many of the young folks out there, they just, they're thrown into this sea of white faces, white and yellow faces mostly. And it's a strange world to navigate. Um, so yeah, that, that definitely rings true. Yeah, like especially for a group of students who like being on the reservation, being in like a very small rural community all their lives, and then like being thrown into like an institution like Stanford um, right. is, is very shocking. It's very different. Um, and when I say like stay in community with them, like they're gonna need to be like, this is the community that they came from. This is the community that like, don't lose touch, like stay, stay with them. Like, um, and like I like I don't know if that's what decolonizing education really is about because I think like the idea of higher education is like is very independent like I'm gonna go do my four years like this is like my like way to go away from my home and like do what I do like a very like American like individualistic idea but like taking community approach to higher education might be might be a way to flip it. Mm -hmm. So are there like current proposals to bring bring more of that model to to South Dakota or closer to communities? Um, I think like I like what tribal colleges are doing. Um, tribal colleges like are really like we're really set up to provide higher education to um, to the community. And so like they're located 
in areas where you wouldn't think a rural setting would have like a place where you could get your bachelor's and your master's degree like a lot of the reservations have access to a tribal college schools like haskell um, indian nations university provide free education for native students um and a lot in students come in cohorts from their reservations and like pretty much stay the course. The, the bad news is, is that like, there isn't a lot of uh, folks taking these opportunities up for one reason or another. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot that needs to, um, needs to go into it. When you were um, working on at the school in the res, did you have any insight into what the, the family lives were like of the students? Were there any sort of pervasive patterns of what that domestic situation was like and how, if at all, it impacted the academics? I think like what, it's, it's similar and different to like what you would see with other um, uh, people of color households, like generational families um, living in a household. Uh, one major difference is that like these households are often these are government households, some of them, like a lot of them are. And so like the upkeep, um, like these aren't, some of them aren't the best living conditions. The impact on education is high um, because like needing a place to study is important. Um, needing um, a place to, like just needing a place <laughs> is important. And, and so like the high school, like in like middle school and elementary school does provide a place for students to um, like have their own place in some ways to like really study and focus. For the high school you were at, are, are there actually other options for students to other, I guess, high school options, multiple high school options, such as private versus, versus public? What, what kind of, what are, what are the kinds of institutions that exist on the reservations that students have as options for secondary education? And where does that funding come from? Yeah, good question. So on Rosebud, there are two high schools. Um, there is Todd County High School, which is a state-funded high school. And then there's St. Francis Indian School, which is a Bureau of Education School, which is funded by the federal government. And so both schools um, have different funding sources. One gets state funding in addition to like Title I funding from the government. The St. Francis Indian School is strictly federal funding through the BEI, um, Bureau of Indian Education, and so, which is a part of the Department of Interior. Uh, so the, their funding is different um, depending on which school you go to. St. Fra like Francis didn't have to follow certain state guidelines, um, whereas Todd County did. But, and so there's like trade-offs in both. In the high schools, uh, what kind of mental health services were available when you were there? So there we had counselors um, available and my, when I started as administrator, um, we started a social work program where we um, fully got um, two social workers um, and I loved it. <laughs> I, um, like my, she was a really great friend of mine who, um, she had her, she got her master's in social work and um, I knew she was going to be amazing at the role and she um, did a lot for our students. Um, and so uh, I'm praying after I left that the program is still there 
because like it's such an amazing service. Um, um, in addition, like there are like contracted out services with like the, in like our IHS that also provide mental health services too for our students. Like if we don't, if there aren't enough resources at our school. How, how would you compare um, education on Rosebud to um, the options available at other, at other Lakota reservations, such as Pine Ridge, Standing Rock compared to Standing Rock. Maybe, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember Standing Rock as a Lakota reservation, but yeah, definitely like compared to Pine Ridge. Pine Ridge, in addition to, Pine Ridge doesn't have a state school, and so it has um, a Little Wound High School, which is a, um, a bureau school, um, a tribal school. Um, but one thing that Pine Ridge does have, it has Red Cloud. Um, Red Cloud is a high school, which is a private high school. A good friend of mine um, was administrator, I'm not gonna name his name, uh, talked about like Red Cloud, because it's a private high school, has a lot more autonomy um, to serve their students. Um, and Red Cloud also has a, a wider history of getting their students to a four year and completion, completing these four year degrees. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that like the, through philanthropy are able to get the best teachers on their reservation. And because of an endowment, like they're able to make sure that they ensure their students like really receive support. Um, and I think like they do a really great job in making sure that like donors like uh, understand their story, understand what they're doing and like are able to like really buy into their program. And so like I, I really commend like, Cloud on Pine Ridge for doing what they do. Unfortunately, like we don't admit every student, like there is an application process. There's also a test that we provide um, that students have to take in order for them to admit um, because of space that they don't really have a lot. That, that's interesting because uh, I, re I still remember the, the sort of social, the social attitudes that people on Rosebud have against people on Pine Ridge and stuff like that. Then you have, I guess you have the better school on Pine Ridge or <laughs> a more exclusive one. That's kind of, that's kind of ironic. Well, was your, I remember you came and visited South Dakota, mm -hmm. like briefly mm -hmm. when I was there. Um, what was your perception when you, um, <laughs> just meandered through Dakota. Uh, I still remember seeing it. I was like, this is the weirdest thing. Like, I had this separation of, like, my time in California and yeah. South Dakota, then, like, in Pops and Carlos. <laughs> like, <I'm> just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, like, yeah, what was your, like, I know it was brief, like, what was your perception? Like, what did you, what did you see and what did you what did you take away? I mean, I, I totally noticed the difference uh, between the two reservations. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, the starkest difference was, uh, I mean, if only from, from like your own observations that you gave me, plus like things I saw there, like uh, Rosebud actually has an Indian bar. Like there's, it's, it's not a dry reservation versus Pine Ridge, whereas, you know, even though people still like drink a lot on Pine Ridge. So there's a uh, Pine Ridge definitely felt felt more intense. Like there's a lot more intense history uh, due to the you know the wounded wounded knee uh, memorial, the the history of AIM. Uh, I I don't know how much AIM was active in Rosebud or the other ones, but I do know like a lot of stuff happened on Pine Ridge, and you you could still feel the the, the reverberations of of those conflicts. I think 
like that was something that was pretty pretty apparent to me where and then going on to rosebud i mean maybe it was also because like you hosted me well i i was hosted by and both i guess i was hosted on both locations so but yeah like it rosebud seemed more chill there was something about it that was more chill less intense yeah like uh i remember my sister because because i have my half sister my half sister she lives on on pine ridge and uh she definitely made the way she described the reservation uh and the living conditions there it it even through her descriptions it just made it it made the area seem more intense like there were places you could go there were places you couldn't, much like in cer uh, certain urban settings. And I think that was that was start, like one of the big surprises for me, actually. You had this, on Pine Ridge, you had this place which is actually the, the very center of the continent. One of the farthest locations you could get, you could, away from, from any like coastline. I forget, there's a term for this, uh, uh, which like a term for, Figuring out the the exact center of a uh, of a of a continent such that it's like as far as away as you can get. Hey Takashi. Hey, sorry, I think it's so late. Yeah, yeah. Nice to see this guy. Nice to see Aries. Hi. So like you could like this place is and I think it's Kyle too. My my sister lives in Kyle, which is like the town closest to this point, which is as far away as you can get from any coastline as you can on North America, and. You could get so far from from urban settings, right? In this very rural setting, more rural than other places I've been to, more rural than my setting, for sure. And it still had elements of of an urban environment. You still had, you know, you there were barriers to certain regions that you couldn't enter because, like, there was there's this um, area that was basically like Section Eight housing or something like that. Right. That, and that's that was like a place she told me, yeah, you can't really you shouldn't go there. Right. Because there's lots of trouble that happens there. Yeah. There, so there was a sense of like the need for vigilance, the, the need to be kind of kind of like aware of your surroundings uh, to kind of distrust people because, you know, like don't, you know, don't pick don't allow people to pick up a ride, you know, or. Don't allow people to pick you up for a ride, depending, you know, make sure you kind of stick with people, you know. So that was, there was, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. Um, and that, that was very surprising for me because that was, I mean, I mean, my, like in my area, that's, that's, things are sort of peaceful. And I didn't get that sense from Rosebud, Rosebud. So Rosebud did feel very different. Uh, but I don't, but I mean, that could also be a, pro a product of the way you presented it, right? It, it felt more, there was something about it that felt more welcoming and secure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Pine Ridge. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, like, even though I'm not um, a local, like, I, <laughs> hearing these, like, stark differences is like, yeah, that's right, Rosebud. <laughs> Go yeah. Like your observation is very accurate. Like I, like when you talked about like the epicenter of the continent. Yeah. Um, I remember like my first year, you know, like learning about that because some TFA was like, "We're gonna go to the epicenter." I was like, "What?" Like, <laughs> we're gonna like planted a flag. I was like, "This is like way too colonial for me to handle." <laughs> he was like, "Stop doing this everywhere you go. Stop putting a flag <laughs> everywhere." <laughs> yeah. Takashi, how are you? I'm doing well. I, I apologize for being late. 
we were uh, visiting my nephew and it was the uh, first time my parents were able to hold him. So I, I just oh, couldn't wow. leave right away. So, so I apologize about that, but I'm good. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what y'all have been talking about. It sounds like it's been great conversation. Uh, but uh, just to catch up with Aries, um, I've been teaching for the past eight years in LA. I've taught math, science, special education, and I recently got a counseling degree or last year. And I'm going to be transitioning into that field too. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I actually... Oh, no, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. Um, I just want to say I have to leave, unfortunately. I just want to say thank you to Aries for being here. I've learned so much in this brief amount of time. But um, it was very nice to meet you. And um, Carlos and Takashi, I'll see you next week. See you, Daniel. All right. See you. Have a good one. Yeah. How are you been, Aries? Uh, I've been good. Um, life is a whirlwind. Um, I know. <laughs> um, lucky to be alive um, through everything. Um, but it's so great to see you and Carlos even though virtually. Um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, it's just been like a weird decade <laughs> since I've seen yeah. you. Yeah. Are there uh, a lot of collaboration with, within like other tribes across the nation? Uh, I guess in terms of maybe educator and also the community. I not not so much at the school level. Um, mm-hmm. At least not in not at my school. Um, I know in tribal colleges, like we have AAC, which is like I think stands for American Indian Higher Education Consortium. Um, and so the tribal colleges that are located like either on or off reservations, like get together and do a conference um, around like best practices um, and the we deal with like a myriad of issues facing um, the Americans in higher education, particularly at their tribal college. And so um, they, they do a lot um, that event like service local, like that will service native students. Uh, I'm trying to think, but I feel like all those questions have been asked. It's just, it's just really good to see you and hear from you, Aries. It's so good to see you both. <laughs> I want to be a real chip through Central and Los Angeles and all the way back to San Diego and yeah. <laughs> just get out of quarantine. Um, and yeah, I, it's, it's, it's so good to hear from you both and like, you know, like hearing you guys doing amazing work. Um, thank you so much for like inviting me onto this um, podcast that you both are doing. Um, and it's, it's really great to hear like that you both are doing such amazing work. Um, hard to believe that UC San Diego was like the, the hotbed of like great people <laughs> but it was uh, especially all the crazy stuff I'm hearing happening there right now um, yeah 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 I, I guess oh go ahead Carlos I I had a I had a follow-up question to something else I asked earlier but if you want to keep going Takashi with oh uh, I mean this is a general question for both of you Okay. Because uh, I know we both went to the same university and yeah. we were kind of in similar spaces, right? Cross-cultural center, SAC. I know both of you were part of um, NASA. Um, uh, I know there's like different organizations that were there. Like just be- being there and like looking back on it like uh, over a decade later, um, how do you, I guess like, you know, just what's kind of like our your reflection or uh, understanding like where you are to this day? I, I don't know. I guess I'm trying to ask is like, how has the experience of the stuff we did at UCSD kind of impact to where we are to this day? Mm-hmm. I would love to hear your thoughts on this too, Takashi. Yeah, uh, I'll definitely uh, share too. Yeah, I, 
I've been thinking a lot about UCSD as of late, just mainly because I have nothing else I could do. Because um, it's just been, um, but I think like it was it was very pivotal as far as like my own like personal development and like I think UCSD was like the place where like I really understood and like grappled with like what empathy really meant and like what lines of differences really meant and what what it means to authentically communicate and like I still cherish like all the connections and friendships I made during my time there um yeah that's that's how I'm like taking away from it yeah yeah oh yeah yeah for me it was uh it was definitely where for me it was more about I guess developing professional skills because um the highlight for me at UCSD was definitely my work with my research mentor, my research advisor, and he sort of was responsible for exposing me to this whole world, the, the whole world of academia and the procedures and types of activities that they engage in, such as conferences and publications. Like that was, that was something that was extremely foreign to me before UCSD and even before working with him while still at UCSD. So that's definitely something I took away from that kind of basically exposure to the world of research and like the kind of work that people do in that. Besides that, it was definitely like UCSD was also for me. It was, yeah. For me beyond that, it was, it was a lot of learning to navigate institutions, I guess, to navigate institutions, to navigate relationships with people within that institution I get like, like Ari said, like learning to communicate effectively. Yeah. Uh, and then ultimately kind of getting used to a new environment. Yeah. Cause I remember, I remember having like some culture shock in college. Yeah, for sure. So le- learning how to, how to get used to that. Yeah. Kind of similar to what both of you said. I felt the same way too. I had a culture shock, even though I'm only two hours away from San Diego. I think it was the first time where I saw a lot of class differences and race differences, right? Um, it was the first time where I've been in an environment where there's a lot of whites and Asians. Um, and I also realized that, oh, okay, even the Asians uh, at the campus, like I, I felt like I couldn't connect with some of them. And part of it was like the class differences, right? Like some of them came from different neighborhoods. Maybe they came from like maybe more white neighborhoods or more privileged areas. I think the idea of privilege um, became more aware uh, when I was at the university. And also I started to explore my own self-identity because, you know, I've always never really thought about my cultural identity because even though I have a Japanese name, um, my family's from Laos in Southeast Asia. And that was something that I began to explore and do more research on like the history of like the Vietnam War and how it affected them going to, you know, Japan as refugees here. Like if I hadn't gone to UCSD, or like universities that's was like further away from my home. I don't know if I would have really explored that, right? Because if I'm in a situation where I'm kind of used to or comfortable, then I'll just kind of go go along with the flow. And getting involved with cross, uh, you know, the cross cultural center and different orgs that you know we we all know about, uh, especially like the immigrant rights org that I was part of, kind of made me also have a very critical lens of like news um, of different like work done by professors. So it just kind of gave me a different perspective on what I, what I used to believe growing up, you know, like histories, um, being ethnic studies major. And I was also a math major too. 
I, I don't know. It's just like the different variety of the interaction with the people. Like you all said about communication skills, it just kind of, uh, yeah. It, and I hate to admit it, it kind of developed me into who I am today because I don't like to give UCSD a lot of credit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but yeah, it, it did shape who I am today. And like I was thinking like if I had gone to a different university, would I be the person who I am today? You know, so that that's that's it definitely has shaped me um, in, in different directions. Yeah, I talking to other alum, I <laughs> I feel so weird. I'm like, would we be the same people if we had gone anywhere else? Like, would we? Um, and you know, I think it's one of those things that um, I don't know if we'll, we'll ever have the answer, but I'm just grateful to <laughs> have her to like talk with amazing folks like yourself. Well, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I met you, Aries and Takashi. I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really wanted to ask my follow-up question. I, I like this. I like the direction of this conversation, but I, I feel like this might be a good question for for the this session. And because in, in we were I was we were talking earlier about the differences between Rosebud and, and Pine Ridge, but beyond that, uh, another thing I recall from my experience visiting was the 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 sense of the idea of borders, and that was another thing that I noticed like paralleled. Our, our greater experience of like, you know, people with the, the greater experience that people have within like the, the experience of, of like the broader community in, in, in this country, right? Especially like, especially going back to like staying in, living in San Diego and having like the Mexican border right there and having like a, this very strong sense of like national borders imprinted onto us, right? Like, so when I went visited the reservations, there was that same concept again. You had the, this concept of like borders between reservation and non-reservation land. And then also the idea of border towns, right? And the significance of border towns, like what makes, what makes them distinct, right? There's, there's very special qualities that, borders, that border towns have that allow them to earn their, that designation, right? There's some special politics they have, right? Like, uh, okay, uh, like Whitehorse, or I forget the name of like that very famous border town that's in Nebraska that sell that makes like millions of dollars like selling alcohol. Uh, yeah, Whitehorse. Yeah, um, that which is a border town, but then also like a couple others. Like I remember my sister telling me about border towns, like generally, right? And so I wonder, I wonder how um, that dynamic kind of plays out with with high school. Uh, kids, right? Like, how do they sort of navigate these spaces uh, within, how do they navigate going into, like, high school, and then outside, like, how do they navigate those spaces outside of high school, right? And how does, how does maybe their education impact their experience of those spaces? You're asking, like, <laughs> such a profound question. Yeah. Uh, no, and it's also really good. Um, I can't divorce this conversation with what's currently happening right now with COVID-19. Um, I could tell you, um, like currently like Rosebud and I know the reservation in South Dakota have like locked down. We have enforced like the idea of sovereignty and the idea of like, you know, the Western idea of like nationhood and have prevented like unlimited access for people coming in and out of the reservation. Um, and have really enforced, um, certain mandates within the boundaries of the res reservation to prevent the spread of COVID-19. 
Um, and the border towns that you talked about, such as like for the ones in Rosebud, um, like Winter, um, Valentine, Nebraska, um, all of these folks are like highly conservative, have notions of what reservation life is like. And even though like only a few miles away, like have these very negative connotations of what Native American children and Native American people are like. And so they view these blockades or like these checkpoints as like, like how dare these like dirty native people like <laughs> put up these like borders um and it became like a like a contention with the state government of, of uh, south dakota like the governor itself like sent a letter to donald trump being like hey like we need help like the natives are at it again like we put up these checkpoints um and we want you know like we want access which is weird because like like these border town people never wanted to go to the relation in the first place they're afraid but like rosebud itself like has a major like u.s highway going through it and so it like even though these checkpoints don't prevent people from coming through i guess in some ways it slows down and i think like the point of it is like to prevent the spread of COVID 19 and your question about like how does how do these border towns impact like youth and like growing up and like interactions with it the border towns are the place where a lot of racism occurs. Um, when I went to pump gas at the border town to the reservation, like I was called a prairie word. Um, and so, and a lot of students and a lot of like family members like will be called like derogatory terms just to get, a, just to get gas. And unfortunately, like these border towns are the places where the movie theaters are, are located, where a close shopping center is located, where a close, um, and so, and like you said, like the white place in, in particular, like it was a particularly important bird to tell that you mean because like that's where liquor was sold. And because Pine Ridge is a dry reservation, like alcohol is illegal to buy, folks have to go to this very racist and very like exploitive border town to buy alcohol. Um, and so there's these particular like relationships that you said um, that the reservations in these border towns have which is interesting because like a lot of these border towns also have contracts with with institutions like particularly schools and hospitals on the reservation such as like contracting with um like uh oh gosh um like a construction and like other things and so these border towns actually make a lot of money off of the reservation they make i think a lot of their money actually comes from like reservation contracts but their attitude towards the Americans are so racist and so bad that like native folks have to be like, let's start, let's just make our own business. Like let's stop doing business with these border towns and like, you know, start our, start our own thing. So we don't have to deal with these racist um, like policies and everything that they do. And so like, but like I said earlier, do like federal regulation, federal things like businesses can't really start up in the reservation. So it's a lot harder. Yeah. When you were describing that, that, that also sounds like, like other borders too, like right. in other countries in this country, like the U.S.-Mexico border, you right. know, like Palestine, Israel, um, just like different parts of the world too. It's just it's like very similar. Like I, I was also curious too, is there like international solidarity with other indigenous people across the world? Um, just like the, I, I'm sure like each tribe or each group is a little different, but. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, thinking locally, like and expanding globally, like I think it's like, it's hard enough to like I, like something something about being on Rosebud is, is very isolating. Mm. However, what we saw in 2016 was like when the pipeline was coming through, 
we like we gain national like global attention um, to the point where the tribal president of San Diego went to the United Nations and like spoke. It got so big, um, like nothing since like American Indian movement in the nineteen sixties. Um, that 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 wasn't such a movement. Um, unfortunately, like politics got involved and like the tribal president was voted out and I'm not like the fallout from it has has its own ripple effects, but um, the potential is there to do solidarity like globally with other indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like a lot of local issues keep keep it keep us very local. And so like there isn't enough to do. Yeah. Not to say that like um, we aren't aware of everything that's happening outside of our reservations. Um, like currently right now, like there's a lot going on with the Black Lives Matter movement. Tribal tribal members and like people on the reservations like are um, like in massive solidarity and allyship with what's going on. I think when things were happening with the oil pipeline, like Flint was also doing like a water crisis. Like we like there is massive solidarity across like black and native like communities. Because um, I think like a lot of these things that we, we experience are very similar, but they're like, um, like our realities are different. Uh, that's awesome. That Yeah, that's, that's often something uh, I feel like we don't often hear about the black and native solidarity. Yeah, I think it's because of how we experience racism is different. Mm. Um, I think like genocide was the operating mechanism around like, in like Native American, um, policies and so it's like main function is like to have us disappear and so like when it comes to like looking at statistics looking at other like demographics like Native Americans aren't really shown um despite like these drastic massive um, statistics that showed Native American suicide rates being high mm-hmm. uh, Native American incarceration rates are like exceptionally high um uh other things that like should be we should be included in national conversations or not it's because of the system genocide that has um focused on our erasure so that way the u.s like colonial system could exist on our land Mm. um racism in conjunction to like um like the black community is much more aligned with capitalism much more aligned to like commodities and so like i think that's why like the conversation around like is is different yeah Oh, I don't know if this was addressed, but um, what type of uh, supports are there in the reservation, particularly in Rosebud, like for mental health, like in terms of like healing, spiritual healing, like, uh, yeah, like social, emotional well-being. Like, yeah, I'm just curious to hear about that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I feel briefly about like what's available as far as like, like what systems are available as far as like um, IHS, Indian Health Services, provides like some form of mental health. Um, the schools provide like uh, counselors, but within the reservation itself, like there are like people host sweats. Um, mm. One of my students' father started the, uh, the Boys with Braids program, which is essentially like a, a Lakota men um, like nonprofit um, that's focuses on like building native men and like really getting Native men to like feel pride and like address issues such as mental health. Um, and that, um, and there are like traditional um, ways that mental health is um, being addressed that's also there. 
Um, unfortunately, it's not, um, there isn't enough, um, but it's there, yeah. And are most of the mental health folks uh, from the community or are they like outsiders from the reservation? I think it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, like I've said, I think um, folks who work within IHS and like other social programs are from outside the community. Sometimes they'll try to get folks within the community to work in conjunction, if not within the, within the programs. Everything done in the traditional way is all done within the community. But unfortunately, like elders are, you know, they're dying. Um, a lot of traditional mm -hmm. ways are, um, are, are slowly changing. Um, yeah. Do you have any uh, recommendation on books? On books? Yeah, but I, I always like to ask these questions. Like, do you have like a book recommendation? Yeah, um, actually, King Wayne Yang, do you remember him? Which one? King Wayne Yang. Oh, yeah, yeah. He wrote a book with Eve Tuck called Land Pedagogy. Oh. Um, hold on, let me look this up. He actually uses a diff he uses a shadow name called La Paperson. Uh, <laughs> it's so it's so weird. No, trust me, it's so weird. Um, <laughs> I love him though, but he wrote this book called Land Pedagogy. Let me try to find it. I'm gonna um, oh I I wrote Land Petals. Um, Land Pedagogy. I, I remember he wrote an article about like settler colonialism with Eve Tuck. I don't know if this is the same one. Um, no, this is a form book. And I think, like, I think what, what's within this book is actually very, I think it's actually very profound. Um, here, I'll just send it on this chat here. Land education, post-colonial decolonizing perspective as well. <laughs> oh, wow. Huh, there's only one left in stock. <laughs> oh, what? Oh, get the Kindle. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's a rare book. <laughs> what was uh, something you liked about this book? I think like what I liked about it was that the, they talked about decolonization as healing. And often when I hear about decolonization, at least when I was an undergrad, um, it's a very, it has, a, it has like a somewhat violent connotation that like we need to reclaim our land, we need to like, up, like upheave capitalism, we need to like dis dismantle the United States, mm -hmm. um, which is, very taxing. <laughs> I, I have a hard time like doing a lot like mundane things and I think like rethinking and like potentially positioning decolonization as a form of healing is also profound in its own way because like we we have a lot to heal from. There's a lot of PTSD in addition to the resiliency that we have um, and like we need a space in order to really communicate and flesh that out. Um, and I think like we're like a good place for us to heal like potentially in our schools. That's cool. I'll check it out. I mean, I feel like this could be like a multiple episode too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a big topic. And Ares, I don't know if Carlos has mentioned it last week uh, or not last week. Uh, I think about two weeks ago, we had Leslie on the show. She was talking okay. about the early intervention in the deaf and hard of hearing community. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, it's it's phenomenal to see like where a lot of us landed after <laughs> nearly being nearly burned out of UCSD. Uh, yeah. And uh, I I don't know I think we we had like a very ex like collectively like experience at the university, um, which is also like extremely reflective of what's happening nationally right now. Like I think we really try to change the system. And I think like we're approaching the point where, we, or we are in the point where we 
are like effectively changing the system. I feel like most of us are working in the field of education or nonprofit or something related to that sort. I know some of us are working in policy um, and some are journalists, some are doing some really phenomenal work and I, um, I wish if we could do like a virtual reunion. I don't, maybe we could do a virtual reunion actually. Yeah, actually that would be really cool. Possibility. It's not, <laughs> that's not a wild idea. What would you um, tell people? I guess like outsiders of people who barely know about the reservations or the Native American community, I guess what's something you would want them to know like before going into like a reservation or maybe for folks who want to teach there through TFA or different programs? It's a really great question. Um, also like, I think like something that I, I would advise like a new teacher going into these spaces is like, like one like be willing to learn like there's a lot of humility in teaching and and two like you know these families and these communities are trusting you with their students education and so that's that's a responsibility that shouldn't be taken lightly i need to get going but it's been so great um uh, meeting with you guys. Um, I hope the things I said made sense, Carlos. <laughs> I think I rambled like a lot uh, during this time. Um, that was perfect. That's fine. Cool. All right. um, I hope you guys are safe and thank you for letting me join you. Yeah, no, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'll listen to it later because I'm the one that edits and produces it. <laughs> But I apologize for coming in late, but it, it was just a pleasure having you here, Aries, and just sharing your experiences. And I know it's a topic that most people don't know about, and I'm glad that, you know, you were able to share the experiences and if other folks can listen to it and learn about it. Yeah, I'm so glad. Um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, like, if, like what I said was my name in some way. Um, but all right, cool. Um, sent you the book. Um, let me send you the article I was in, in Business Insider where they're working in Apple. Um, and with that, I think I will put my farewell. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thanks. For